All right, welcome back, everyone. My name is Stephanie Hicks, and I'm here with my co-host, John Michelli, and we are the um, co-host of the Corresponding Author Podcast. So we've been taking a little bit longer uh, times between recordings. It's been harder and harder to find time to do this, but um, we had a topic that came up in discussion recently, and so we thought it would be really great to find a time this week and um, talk about it and share our thoughts on post-grad positions. This is really like the season that people are starting to apply for grad school and people are starting, if you're in academia, starting to think about postdoc positions. And um, maybe John, you want to talk a little bit, you want to open it up? Yeah, I think uh, everything's been going a little slower or, you know, putting another, putting another Zoom meeting or any meeting on your calendar. Right. <laughs> I think everyone's got to the point where it's not just an automatic yes, it's a uh, I'm gonna. I click a lot of maybes now in those Zoom invites. I don't know about you. <laughs> oh, no. I'm just. I'm just giving up on definitive. Like my whole. My whole world is gray. It's not black or white anymore. I try to say no if I like think I'm not coming to this. Though to be fair, I have. Uh, can't. I can't even believe I'm admitting to this. In the last month, I have found myself in several several times in a situation where I've got two different headphones on with two different Zoom meetings going, and it's kind of a comedy show. I took a picture of myself, and I sent it to my sister. She was just like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm, I'm in this Zoom world, and there's just no escaping it. I remember, I don't know if you ever watched this as a kid, but there was a, movie, or a show called Rugrats, and there's this one yes. scene where uh, the dad is making, like, Coke... Uh, I think it was chocolate milk or something like that in the middle of the night. It's like, and um, his wife comes in. She's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm making this. And she's like, why? And he's like, because I've lost control of my life. <laughs> and I feel like that about Zoom sometimes. Like, I haven't had it where I've had simultaneous meetings, but I definitely had like the tail end of one lead into the start of another. And I just can't, I can't I'm just like on the phone, like, I, I need to go. Stop talking. I, goodbye. And and they're not listening. And I'm like, am I on mute? And it's like, no, it's like, they can hear me. They just don't care. <laughs> no, no. I think the in the beginning, I think we were like, oh, we should leave like five or 10 minutes for a buffer. And that has that buffer has gotten smaller and smaller. And now it's negative. It's a negative buffer. It's a negative buffer. That is so true. Yeah, so true. So hold on. So how Descri hold on. I'm going back to this. Describe your two meeting, two headphone scenario. It's it's a it's a really it's a comedy show. I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, maybe I can post a picture and on Twitter or something. And um I have my phone going with one Zoom meeting, and then I have my laptop going with another Zoom meeting. And it's been situations where I've been either double booked by accident <laughs> and I accidentally like committed myself to both of these. And it's a situation where I did not really want to like break from either. So I just keep myself on mute. Now I would say this does not work if you have to like actively participate in the conversation. But if you're passively participating and expected to contribute every now and then, it's not so bad. I mean, honestly, I can't believe I'm saying this. Like a year ago, I think I would have just like cried at myself if somebody had said I had to attend like two Zoom meetings. But it's it's been okay for the situations that I've in. Like I've had a few close calls or like, Dr. Hicks, Dr. Hicks, what are your thoughts? <laughs> And I'm like, oh, right. Can you repeat the question? It's it's so interesting because it's like that could never happen in person. It's like you're in a room and then somebody just comes in and just starts talking to you. 
and you're just like, what's going on? Like that would be the equivalent in real in 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 face to face. Yes, it really is. It's terrible. Like I'm like I do not want to perpetuate or like advocate for this. Um, I would be interested to do a poll. We should do a Twitter poll that asks. Have you been on two simultaneous Zoom calls for any length of time during this pandemic? I think you'd be shocked. It's probably two, I'd say three quarters of people. I, yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. I so did, this is what you can have to look forward to in academia. No, probably any job right now. For all the crap that we talk about Zoom and online meetings, I will say recently there was a day a couple of weeks ago in which I had to attend three different events. One would have been in California, one would have been in Baltimore, and one would have been in Melbourne. And I was able to attend all of them via Zoom. It was a little bit of a crazy day, but I thought, I, I, like actively participating, either giving a presentation or participating in a conference or doing a workshop or something. So there are pros, but, but our day-to-day, my day-to-day like Zoom life is not ideal. I, I agree with you, but on the flip side, I would say my choice would have been to go to Melbourne oh, and God. not do those other things at all. Uh, no offense to what those other things were, but yes, that that it does. The technology allows us some monumental things, but sitting, you know, in Australia in in now their their summerish time Summer, yeah. is. You know, while we're in winter, it you know it can't really replicate that. Oh no, and nothing, nothing replicates to having an audience. Like there's just yeah. nothing like it. I've given yeah. so many talks during the pandemic, and I tell a joke, and literally, I just I'm staring back at myself, and I I have to laugh at my own jokes to make sure that people know that I'm yeah. joking, because otherwise, you know, maybe the sarcasm doesn't translate <laughs> online. Yeah, and so I'm like, oh, it's a joke. <laughs> It's it's very interesting because you know I watch uh, a good amount of late night um, shows like Seth Meyers and Stephen Colbert and stuff like that, and you know their whole job is only validated by whether the joke lands or not, and it's just talking into the void. I mean, I think many people who, especially who are teaching right now, like oh, you know. make a joke and then you just feel sad because like no one like you see, at best you see like a clap emoji on Zoom. And it's just that that pro- I think that probably breaks my heart more than a more than a fake laugh. I think so. I so I haven't I have not been teaching this fall actually. So I haven't had the um, I haven't had the experience that so many educators out there have had, both positive and negative of teaching during a pandemic. But my uh, my sense is that recording videos is probably a slightly different feeling than knowing that you're giving a live talk to an audience of people online who are technically there, but just don't say anything. For me, like whenever I give a talk, I mean, I I get into it. I mean, I know that there are people on the other side and I, it's nice to have interaction, of course. And it's nice to have, you know, the people who had not or the people who like agree or disagree with you, people jump in, but then like nothing, like, you know, they're there, but nothing. It's just, as opposed to just recording a video and calling it what it is. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. And like, uh, so, you know, one of the things I will say that is unique, right, is that I had a few friends uh, ask if I would do like a guest lecture in their class. And um, I don't know how I feel about that. I think that's brilliant for them, right? If you're like, oh, I can outsource my class right now. That would be great. I mean, not to say that that's what they were doing, but I'm saying like, there is not really 
any or as many opportunities to do that. Like when you do a, a, a seminar visit or something like that, like if you stay for multiple days, you can do like a short course type thing, but it's not really teaching like someone's class. And it's, it's nice because, you know, I, I talked about our package development and they were like, look, I can say you're like an expert in this. They would love to see some, you know, break up the monotony of me just teaching. And I thought that was really nice. And that was something unique. I did find that I don't think you, we, we really do in other instances. And I don't even know if the, the university really wants us to do, but, um, <laughs> I, I just thought that was one thing. I will say that that allowed us staying home and the technology really allowed us to me to do, yeah. which was kind of unique. And it was nice because it was like, I got to do one lecture. I got to feel like fulfilled teaching, but I didn't have to teach a whole uh, course. And then also like, if they didn't retain any of that, like that wasn't my problem. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> that yeah. makes total sense. All right. So let's get to it. Okay. So post-grad positions. So these are people who um, are in completing their graduate experience. So maybe like a PhD, for example. And you're trying to weigh your prospects about what to do next. So do you want to start out with some, like describe some of the options? Yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll describe some of the options I've had. So one, um, I think we'll probably be focusing majority about like people who graduate with a PhD, but I want to have a quick aside. Like if you do get a master's, right, there are a lot of jobs out there. There are a lot of different roles you can do. Industry, pharma, tech, um, consulting, academic institutions. So I got my master's and then I was a master's level consultant. Um, that was a great stepping stone for me. Uh, personally, I didn't think, I thought that was going to be, you know, my end career. I ended up getting a PhD later, but that was never uh, something I thought just graduating right after my master's. It happened kind of organically, sure. but it I was, it, I say it was a, sorry, I, I don't mean it as a stepping stone as a negative thing. Yeah. I mean that it like taught me a whole bunch of stuff I didn't know. <laughs> um, so like if you're taking courses right now, I would say, especially if you're going in the medical field, knowing, knowing longitudinal data analysis, survival analysis are like very essential. Computer science um, skills. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. yeah. Optimization so, algorithms. And, and consulting, you get a whole different gambit, right? You have some where it's like a clinical trial with an entire data management team. And then you have another small project where they're like, here's a couple spreadsheets and they're not maybe managed well, or they are, or like you have to kind of wrangle them down or, you know, something completely different. So it really stretches your skill set, And I think in a positive way, and it, it makes you realize what you need to know to maybe do um, solid research. And um, it was never boring because I shifted projects or I shifted uh, roles a lot. Um, so I will just say a lot of the things we're talking about will apply to master's level people and PhDs, but Great I think point. we're going to focus probably on the PhD trajectory because it's a little bit um, more laid out. The, the master, I'd say there's a lot more variability in, in master's level data science work. That's a great point. Yeah, that's a really great point. So if we are going to focus on PhDs, um, which I'm happy to do, then you can think about some, some, you can think about like the various types of options, as you mentioned, going into pharma, going into nonprofits, going into academia, going into uh, an industry of sorts. And let's just be honest, most PhDs who graduate from institutions do not go into a faculty position. Um, so a lot of them 
are outside of academia. So we want to have a, a large conversation about that. Um, I will say, though, that when you are thinking about what to do next, at least leveraging and looking back at my own experience, I so as I was finishing my PhD, I wasn't prepared to make that call yet. I wasn't prepared to like decide if I wanted to do more of academia or if I wanted to just go into industry. I, I guess my PhD experience was very, um, what do you call it, narrow? Like you learn all these great tools in your first couple of years in your classes as a PhD student. And then your focus starts to narrow. Like you start to narrow in on a research topic and you dive deep <laughs> into that research topic. You become the expert in the world theoretically on that research topic. And so for me, at the end of my PhD, I felt like I had dove in so, or dug, dove in so deep <laughs> and had like such a narrow vision of the world that for me, I wanted an experience that was the exact opposite, where I could, like as you described, have that consulting-like experience where you could do many different projects, you got to stretch your wings, you got to learn new skills, it was not at all focused. And so for me, I turned to postdocs actually to kind of continue my path of trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> and I found it very... Um, a very nice experience. And so I should state that not all postdoc experiences are the same. Everybody has a very, can have a very different postdoc. And my experience does not necessarily reflect, or does not reflect everybody else's experience. But for me, it was a, it was a good experience. And so it allowed me to have that extra time to determine if I did want to go into industry, if I did want to go into academia or do a nonprofit, I guess is the way of saying it. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And um, I, I put something in the show notes, but uh, there is this great illustration of what you learn in your PhD. It's kind of like a circle with the entirety of science. And then it, it shows oh, wow. you at the very, very, very edge pressing at the ed ed end of it and kind of show how small that pool is that people might understand exactly what your work is or the impact. And then, you know, describes how to yeah. How to not forget the big picture, but I, I go back to that a lot. That's a but, great, great image. Yeah. So uh, I think it's on, um, let's see, it's called the Illustrated Guide to a PhD. So I think it's a, it's a really good thing if you're searching around online to look at that. But um, I agree. And the other thing you get after, you know, a year and a half, two years is your your cohort, your friends, your, your colleagues who have left academia to go to industry, right? I would say they're, they're some of my most trusted friends with and who understand the exact, you know, choices we've made, right? There are other PhDs in my cohort that I can actually ask, what is your real day to day like? And I can trust their answer. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Right? So, that, so that's another thing you get by, it's not waiting, but trying out a, using a postdoc as a time to maybe expand your research, finish some of your research, learn new topics, or, you know, try out academia, if you will, even though there are some things that benefits that you have as a postdoc that you don't have as, a, you know, a faculty, I think you have a little bit more time or less time, depending on your advisor. But I do think you definitely have a larger pool of people who have real world experience who are not gonna, who don't really have an agenda behind telling you what's up. That's true. Um, I should state, though, that there are both good and bad postdoc experiences. Like I can imagine an advice, a postdoc advisor 
making your postdoc experience as academic as possible and not really letting you make your own decision. Um, And so I, I think it's important to state that a lot of people can do a postdoc and then go into industry. And that is completely normal. That should be normalized. Like doing a postdoc does not mean that you're going to go into academia. It just means that you, you, I mean, it could be that, that could be one reason why you would want to do a postdoc, but that is definitely not the only reason. A lot of people, including myself, just haven't decided and they want a little bit more time for a variety of reasons to finish things or um, to wait and not make that decision yet. So I just, I want to make that really, really clear that doing a postdoc does not mean <laughs> you're going in academia. Yeah. And I think, you know, later in your, in your PhD, you might realize you liked a certain topic area that you didn't get to, you might not have an expert at your institution. You might be Great able point. to go work with them. Yeah. Also, there's, there's somewhat different funding mechanisms. So the K99R00 is a training grant that is essentially like an R01 that you, I think, only can have access to if you're a postdoc. That is true. Yes. There are some that you can um, apply for as a U.S. citizen-based PhD student. That one, there are some um, options available, but the K99R00 is available to uh, non-U.S. citizens too. So that's the great yeah. part about it. So you, you, I'm going to uh, press you a little bit because you said, you know, there could be some good or bad postdoc experiences and you never really know until you're there, but like, what are some of the questions you might pose to kind of try to weed good from bad? Before we get to that, can I talk about a little bit about strategies for applying? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So I have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I'm already jumping the horse. It's like questions once you get the interview, but let's talk about applying. So um, depending on, you know, when you want to start your postdoc, if you're thinking I'm graduating in May, for example, and I want to start in September, I want to have the summer off, for example, now is a great time to start to contacting people. First question I always get is, when do you start contacting people or when do you start answering ads for postdocs? Basically, as early as you uh, know, because the idea is you want to give the faculty member, your postdoc advisor, your future potential postdoc advisor, time to get organized and um, discuss projects and discuss funding and and all of that. So as soon as you decide that you want to start applying, just start emailing. Now, if it's like two years out, probably not. (laughs) But within a year is like completely normal and reasonable. So just start email, uh, start applying. Now, some advice that was given to me that I have greatly appreciated and have like taken with me and I pass on to so many people whenever they ask me about strategies for applying for postdocs is when I first started applying, my intuition and my my initial assumption was to answer ads. So I'm a, a student and there are all these ads out there advertising for postdoc positions. And a lot of them are great. And if it's on a topic that you like, that is extremely interesting to you, you should for sure apply. You should absolutely answer the ad and um, contact the faculty member, discuss the, the position, all of that. However, something that was not obvious to me, that was um, told to me by my one of my co-PhD advisors, is that the majority of my um, inquiries or applications for postdocs are actually cold emails. <laughs> so I learned this the hard way that it is incredibly common 
for a PhD student to look around um, the, the, the research that's happening in his or her field and say, I've identified five individuals that I think are doing phenomenal research that I am incredibly impressed by. And, you know, we can like discuss what that means. What does that mean to be incredibly impressed by? It could be high impact factors. It could be a large lab. It could be a small lab. It could be a location. It could be whatever. Um, but somebody that you think you would like to work for, and you may never, you may not have never met them, and that's okay. You email them and you say, "Hi, my name is Stephanie Hicks. I am graduating with my PhD um, in biostatistics in May 2020, and I have been following your work for a really long time, and I, I'm incredibly impressed by you. And I'm interested in doing a postdoc in your lab." And I, I want to tell you why I would be a good fit. And in this email, you, in like two or three sentences, basically take what you know about their lab, either from their website or from their research. And in two or three sentences, you say, what can I bring to the table? Can I bring this new area of um, expertise, causal inference, for example? Or can I bring um, expertise in software engineering? Or can I bring an expertise in... Um, experimental technologies, whatever it is, you you describe how you might be a good fit in their lab and or their group and what you might be able to work on together. It doesn't have to be anything official, but just to give them an idea that you have read about their work, you're aware of what they work on, and you think that you would be a really good fit. And then you send your CV as well, you attach your CV, and you say, um, it would be if you have any time to talk, I would love the opportunity to talk. In, in my experience, when I started doing this, you know, you get some, you get some emails that are like, no, I'm sorry, like, I don't have any funding. I, you know, it's, it's not a good time or whatever. But I was so surprised as to how many people responded and said, wow, you seem like a great candidate. Like, I would love to talk to you and learn more about you. I might be able to put together some funding um, and let's talk. And so, you know, it's, it just was so impressive to me as to like, these people don't have advertised positions, but it, I discovered that a lot of faculty have funding in like various forms and maybe different pots, or maybe they want to um, split your funding with like a collaborator or something. If they're really impressed by you, they will try to find funding for you <laughs> if they really want to yeah. bring you on. Good, good work is, is very hard to find. <laughs> it is. Um. And I don't think, I think especially if you're in a really good program and a really good cohort, I think that can be, uh, you can't, you don't realize that, I think, because everybody around you seem like working really hard, working really fast and getting, you know, progressing on stuff. And like, it's so funny because, you know, the imposter syndrome like swells up in you. And then when you get out, it's like, you know, trying to find really good people to hire can actually be really, really um, burdensome. So yeah, I think that that might be surprising to a lot of people. And so I guess my question to you is, do you, would you target it around like any big conferences? I mean, I know right now going to in-person conferences is kind of off the table <laughs> probably for most, but I'm saying like, would you, that, I think that's the nice thing too, if, if you do it during your PhD, right? Because if you're like, look, I'm graduating in like, you know, three months, I need a job. Then like, I think that conversation or sit down has a little bit more pressure, a little bit more kind of, you know, uh, 
stuff overhanging than if you're just like, hey, I'd like to meet and keep my name in the mix in like a year or two. But do you do you tar- would you recommend like targeting it around any conferences on like ENAR or JSM for statisticians, for example? Oh, sure. So if I'm a PhD student, hopefully your PhD advisor has been telling you all along how important networking is. And hopefully your PhD advisor has been telling you to attend conferences and present your research, talk about them, meet with individuals. I mean, the whole the whole gambit. Like, I, I'm assuming that that's happening. And so I'm talking about, you know, a year out, um, start emailing people that you think are doing really great stuff and just saying, hey, I'm, on, I'm, a, I'm interested in you and your group. And I'm interested in doing research with you specifically. And I want the opportunity to talk about that with you, to explore if that's a possibility. Um, so yeah, you could definitely do this at conferences, kind of like in a very informal setting, or you could just like email people. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I think also, uh, it's very surprising or I get, I think the, one of the things that was most shocking to me, especially with academics is that, you know, you read these people, you know, especially prolific authors are really, you know, people who've changed the field and, you know, they're at conferences. They're the, it's, it's not like there's some CEO of some company that you're, you have to go through eight layers of people to meet or see or anything like that. Like, you know, some labs, uh, PIs or really have a much more hierarchical structure, but like data science and statistics, I think in a lot of respects is relatively flat in the sense that like many, many, many people are approachable. Yes. Uh, which I think, you know, especially as a grad student, you, you sometimes have these inconceived notions of like that these people are just too big to talk to me and it's it's very much not the case with a lot of people no it's actually the exact opposite it's yeah. like very flattering actually to have somebody reach yeah. out and say i am incredibly impressed by your work and i specifically i like this thing and i like this thing and i like i like x y and z and i i just think as you said it's i can it's easy for a PhD student to perceive that as maybe being too forward or maybe like um, somebody doesn't want to answer the email and they may not. And that's okay. But in my personal experience, I was just kind of blown away as to how many people responded and said, yes, let's talk. Now, of course, not all of them, you know, ended in an offer. Like sometimes it doesn't work out for whatever reason. You realize, oh, I misunderstood your research. (laughs) Like this is probably not going to be a good fit. But it, it was, that's how I landed my own postdoc. I mean, it was a lot of just emails of emailing to people that um, I was really impressed by. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a great recommendation. And also, if you do it during your PhD, you have it still leaves that door open to do a collaboration while you're a student and see what it's like to work with this person. I mean, that's not that's probably more rare than than most, but it's it, it's possible where you say, "Oh, okay, I would like to see what you do and work that way," and you might notice some good or bad things about that, right? <laughs> you know, you like, just, just you don't personalities like. don't always jive. Um, but it, it, or it does show like, maybe they're like, you know, it would take me a, a lot of time to put together the funding for this. And it's just like, you're a student, you're like, look, I do awesome stuff if you want me and take, you know, you, it's going to be an uphill battle to get the funding, but this is what I can do. It can allow you to show your portfolio and your skill set that like an interview just doesn't encapsulate. That's so true. Yeah. yeah. Now, okay, so let's assume that you've made that initial contact and somebody says, yes, let's talk. And you've had that initial conversation, 
how do you know it's a good fit? That's the another mm-hmm. question I always get. And now that question is a little bit harder to answer because it's up to kind of like your own personal preference of how you work. So for example, there are groups that have um, labs that are larger, meaning that there's a faculty member and then they may have you know, quite a few postdocs and many PhD students or master's students or undergrads working under them or working with them. And then there are smaller groups. So there are more one-on-one experiences where you get a lot more direct mentorship. And that's kind of like up to you how you work. So how do you know it's a good idea or how do you know it's a good fit? Well, it's essentially you asking questions about the lab to people in the lab and determining if you're getting A, a consistent set of answers, does everybody respond in the same way or is everybody responding differently? Everybody responds differently. That's concerning (laughs) because that means like everybody has a different experience (laughs) in the lab. And so you would want to have like some kind of consensus that, yes, this is like the way the lab works and this is, this is what happens. So hopefully you get a consistent answer and then you get an idea of what it's like to be in there. Do you have direct one-on-one communication with the faculty member daily, weekly, monthly? Do you have um, responsibilities of mentoring students? Maybe you want that, maybe you don't. Do you have responsibilities or access availability to teach and get experience? Do you want that? Maybe you don't. And so that's more of like a, all of those questions are a personal thing that's kind of like up to you and your style and what you're looking for in a postdoc. And so I, it's, I think the best advice I can give you is ask as many questions as you want to as many people as you need to be able to like have some kind of consensus in your mind of what, that, what an experience would be like as a postdoc in that group, and then determine if that's a good fit for you. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's right. And, you know, I, I've always found it surprising that like there's a whole field in psychology like Myers-Briggs and other like personality-based profiles and then, and then studies which work best together. And then we don't use like any of that stuff when hiring uh, in academia and things like that. I agree. So like, exact, yeah, exactly. I think um, having more than one meeting a week about progress updates for some would feel like micromanagement. The other if, if it was twice, you know, one, once every two weeks would just feel like you're left out in the cold to do things. So it is, it is a lot of personal preference, um, which, which is really hard as, <laughs> as someone, I mean, you have a postdoc, it's very hard to manage mm-hmm. that, especially if you have multiple people who, who work in very different ways. That is true. Communication is helpful though. I mean, like being upfront and asking them about what their expectations are for what works for them has been really great for me and in my group, especially during the pandemic, because like, everything is now online. And so some meetings that I was having maybe once a week for an hour, I've now broken up into like two to three times a week for half an hour. So I'm meeting with these individuals more frequently, but for a shorter amount of time, just so that I'm engaging in a conversation, in some conversation with them on a more frequent basis. I mean, normally I would assume that they would be engaging in conversations with individuals in the department, but I don't necessarily know that's happening. And so I want to make sure that I'm having like consistent conversations, maybe less, uh, less for a smaller length of time to enable um, a feeling of interactivity and inclusion and less isolation. I will, I will say that we talked about me, Zoom meetings at the, the beginning of this. I do think half-hour meetings have come through a little bit more 
That is true. Um, yeah. As an option, which I think is a, is a plus. I mean, you might have more meetings, but hopefully they're shorter. But yeah, I think I think expectations of time is important. So I guess a question I would have for you is like, do you have any ways to kind of ask a question about funding and the security of that? Like, should that be laid out up front? Like, how could you maybe see some red flags where it's like, are you sure you have the funding? Things like that. Yeah, so you could be the type of person that asks about it explicitly or that brings it up explicitly in this initial email. So, for example, say you are writing this initial email and you actually have an idea that you something that you want to propose and you say, I would like to propose this idea with you as my postdoc advisor and I want to apply for a grant to, to specifically fund this project. That is a very specific type of postdoc that you have already independently come up with your own idea, which hopefully is great, or maybe it needs some refinement, and you want to go through the effort of trying to fund yourself, which shows great initiative. Not to say that it would necessarily work out, but I mean, you want to try, and that shows a great initiative and independence. And so from that perspective, the faculty member may or may not want to do that. Hopefully they do. (laughs) It's always like really great when students do that. Um, But Alternatively, you may not have something in mind and uh, or maybe you have something in mind, but you don't have like specific plans to apply for it. You can always talk about that idea and then the faculty member can decide whether or not that's a project that she or he wants to work on or has the funding available to um, to support you on or maybe even have it less vague and you say, I just generally like a, like this area of research that you're doing. I don't work in it at all. I work in this other area, but I really think transitioning to this new area is going to be my future. And so while I don't have a specific project in mind, and that means maybe I don't have any funding associated with it, I would love to become an expert in this new area that you're an expert in. Do you have funding available um, or would you have funding available and just asking about it? A lot of people ask about it on the interview itself, but I find asking about it sooner rather than later is more helpful because it's less of a people's waste of time, essentially. But I mean, I don't know. I guess like everybody's different about how explicit they ask about these types of questions. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's that's right. And I think, you know, if funding is kind of up in the air, that could be worrisome or not. Or, you know, some people, even though they're, they're just like, we don't have something right now, they can definitely put something together. And, you know, some departments, it's like, yes, I don't have anything set in stone, but we can, we can, we can definitely make it work. And some of that is hundred percent true. Some of that is some wishful thinking maybe. Um, but it isn't, you know, I think the other thing is a, a postdoc is an investment, right. From, from the PI. And, and this person that it's going to be mutually beneficial. And I think that that's another thing a student could do is talk about the fine steps. It's like, I know you might be on the fence about this, but like in the next year, you know, I might read up on this thing or start a project in this area. I mean, maybe not start a project because that, that might not be in your control, but you can always talk about definitive concrete steps that you would do to show that you're serious. That's a great point. Yeah. It's um, always good to be more specific and show the steps that you that you've thought about it at least, <laughs> that you've kind of thought through the process of what you might want to do. That shows a lot of initiative as well. So yeah, it's 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 a big thing between 
I like your work. I like that area versus I've read your work or I've read some of your work and I'm going to, in the next six months, like tackle this book, you know, this textbook that talks about that area, or I'm starting a project in that, or I'm moving into that. Those are very, they look very different, I think, in an email. That is true. Now it is, I just want to highlight, um, there might be, for example, faculty that you're applying for, faculty that you're applying to or emailing positions at different stages in their career. So somebody like me, who's um, coming up on her ending her um, third year, doesn't have, for example, the history of or like publication history as somebody who's been in this field for 25 years, you know? And so um, you as somebody who's applying to postdoc positions, you have to decide if that's something that you want to do. If you want to work with somebody who's more in the early stage of their career or a later stage in their career, and there are pros and cons to both, I'll say. So, for example, you can get a lot of one-on-one mentorship from somebody who's early in their career. They have a strong motivation to see you succeed. They have a lot riding on not only their careers, but they want to see you succeed, hopefully. And so I will say there are a lot of um, early stage career folks who um, are would be eager to work with postdocs and have them take a chance on them compared to somebody who's been in the field 25 years who has maybe more of a record of having postdocs uh, finish from their group and then, you know, go work in Google or whatever. You know, so, simultaneous. You can have other postdocs current, concurrently with that person. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. So that's another thing to consider, um, whether or not you want to work with somebody um, earlier in their career and younger in their career. Another advantage of somebody earlier in their career is that they probably are more up to date on the literature of something cutting edge. And they're probably more intimately familiar, meaning that they've had their hands on data more recently than somebody who's um, uh, a little bit further along in their career. Not to say that it's bad. It's just it's a different experience when you have an advisor who says, yes, I ran that analysis last week. Or, yes, I know how to work with this tool as well. And I know how to help you debug. And I know how to help get you past whatever obstacles that you're facing. It's a, just a very different experience. And so if you are going to go for um, a faculty member who is later in their career, then you want to make sure you have access to individuals in the lab who can help you with the more day-to-day nuances of getting around um, analytic problems that you'll face in your, your projects. Yeah. So I want to shift a little bit in, on the side of the PI. So like, what does it cost to have a postdoc? I mean, not necessarily financially, I mean, we can uh, put up the NIH postdoc salaries and, and, you know, postdocs can vary much, much more above that. Um, but like other things that you have to pay for space, you know, fringe, that kind of stuff. Oh, I think that varies. That's a great question. I think that varies a lot department to department, mm-hmm. depending on, for example, if space is limited. <laughs> so for example, well, okay, healthcare. <laughs> Uh, postdocs that you that you pay for um, fringe, and you pay for their healthcare. You pay for um, like all the benefits and things like that. But that usually comes out of um, grants. So I mean, these are charges that you account for whenever you apply for grants. And so this is like 
part of the package. I mean, this is like something that you expect. Different departments then have more nuanced decisions. So for example, during my postdoc, to get access to the cluster, I uh, my PI had to pay $2,000 a year per person to be able to have that person have access to the cluster. That may be critical to your research. And then that person has to pay the $2,000 a year fee to be for each postdoc. And so if you have five postdocs, I mean, that's like, you know, it's a non-trivial yeah. amount of funds. Other people, other departments um, may have resources like at the state level or at the city level or at the departmental level or at the school level to give you access to these things. And the payment system is different, things like that. Travel for, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think, I think technically most institutions though, I think postdocs are still classified under students, correct? Yes, I believe. Well, I mean, I don't know that to be true for everywhere, but in a lot of places they are. Well, the reason I ask is like, you know, that that usually makes them ineligible for certain things like certain requ- uh, retirement benefits and things like that, oh, if yeah. that's something you're into. Yeah. Um, but that, that also means usually they can take courses at the institution if they want, um, depending on the rules of, of the institution and, and actually sometimes the department or school. I believe that's correct. Yeah, I believe that's true for Hopkins. Um, but I I don't know if that's true for most places. I, I wouldn't even dare to guess. <laughs> I think I think it's another question of expectation because I think some, you know, I think probably, you know, 15, 20 years ago from what I could tell, taking classes was a lot more common um, than maybe it is today. And, and I mean, just a large, like an actual course load versus now, um, I think you would take targeted topics or special topics with other faculty to learn specific skills right? Um, versus, you know, embarking on something really intense education wise, if it's not directly related to your research. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great, a great um, advantage if you are in that category to be able to, I mean, like looking back at my PhD, I can definitely think of a few topics that I wish I had (laughs) taken more seriously or taken at all. Um, And so during my postdoc, I could have, you know, taken some of those courses if I wanted to. And if I were classified as a student, then I would have been able to take those courses for free or maybe with like some very minimal cost to the faculty, to the advisor, um, and kind of like expanded my knowledge and potentially, maybe it's like an area that what I would have found really useful going into an industry position after a postdoc that I recognized that I did not recognize during my PhD would have been valuable. But then during my postdoc, I realized, oh, wow, if I'm going into industry, I should really, you know, (laughs) learn about optimization algorithms because I'm going to want to do that or something. So, yeah, I think that is is a a huge point and and usually a a requirement of any K style grants. So not necessarily classes exactly, but definitely some sort of learning syllabus or paradigm that you're going to embark on. Say, I'm going to learn X. And if you don't say, you know, definitive steps are like this, you know, this institution has a whole series on that topic. It's really stronger for that. Um, So yeah, I think the educational component is interesting. And then the other thing, you know, we haven't really touched on is it gives some people, if that's their goal, the opportunity to learn some teaching skills if they've mm-hmm. gotten haven't gotten that during their PhD or feel that they their research school skill set's really strong, but their teaching might be not as strong, and so they can bolster that up as well. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, especially if you decide you want to go to like a liberal arts college, for example, that's a great opportunity to get some teaching experience. So being the uh, eternal kind of pessimist in some respects, I got to say, we got to, we got to talk about some of the downsides, I would say, of a postdoc. A postdoc? So. All right. Okay. Well, do you want to start or do you want me to start? (laughs) I'll take some shots first. Okay. Uh, So you go to some, you know, after your PhD, you go to a postdoc, usually do it at another institution. That usually usually means you got to move. I hate moving. Mm, Um, Good point. New friends. uh, And then sometimes even two years after the postdoc or three years after the postdoc, you have to move again. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that can, that can, that's non-trivial on relationships and cost and friend groups and that kind of stuff. So I will say that is a, that is a thing that weighed heavily on me and my decisions on postdoc or not. Um, That's a great point. Um, Then I will say the second thing that I think is big is uh, opportunity cost in, in your salary. So if you believe, you know, if you believe you are dead set on tech or industry and, you know, you're going to get paid less as a postdoc than probably starting it at what you would there or as a faculty member. Um, I, I will say, I will make someone nuanced comment that I, uh, that you talked about earlier that not everybody is destined for academia and even a smaller, or uh, to be a faculty, but even a much smaller set are probably for tenure track faculty. Mm-hmm. So I will say I'm a research track faculty. I will, I, I've seen some of the growth in that area at, at our school. Mm-hmm. Um, the numbers have grown over the last 15, 20 years of research track faculty compared to tenure track faculty. So those are some of the other things. So if, you know, if you think you want to stay in academia, but tenure track might not be a thing, a postdoc is definitely an option. Research track is also an option. Some of them are hard to get or hard to find. I will say though, very big thing postdocs, you generally have some protected time. Some other things, you hit the ground running and you are working from like day two. Day one is my, day one is HR stuff. So day two. Yeah. Okay. So following up on your, your financial comment, completely agree. The salary discrepancies between what you get paid as a postdoc and what you would get paid post grad school, post PhD in industry is just like mind boggling. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. And you might even ask, why would I ever do a postdoc if I could, you know, make X, X amount of dollars less? And I, I think that's a fair comment. And if you know you're going in industry and, and you know you like you just there's no reason for you to do a postdoc, then that's fine. I mean, there's there's nothing holding you back. I was just in a situation which I wasn't quite sure what to do, and I I really wanted that extra couple of years to explore and kind of like make that decision for myself. And so there are plenty of reasons why you should not do a postdoc and just go into industry if that's what you want. Um, You may have a student loan, like maybe you did a master's program and you have student loans that you need to pay off and it could be a financial decision. I mean, there could be a variety of reasons why it's not possible for you to do a postdoc or want to do a postdoc. So that's a great point. Yeah. Uh, I think those are the biggest ones for me. I will say also try your, your darndest to whatever department you go into for a postdoc to make it a community of your own or get into that community. I think it depends, you know, especially if your space isn't near with the rest of the department or you're not, you know, you kind of are in this middle ground, you might not be, 
be invited or go to meetings with the faculty. You might may or might not with the students. So you kind of are in this middle road. So try to, there's usually postdoc communities at institutions. The other thing I will say is if you are a postdoc and they let you go to faculty meetings, go to them. <laughs> great. Yeah, great suggestion. Uh, well, let's see. So I'm saying that downside of kind of being in the middle, you, you sometimes have to carve your own, you know, professional social network a little bit more. And I think you're a good PI can help with that, but it's still, it's, it's a little bit more work, right? It's, or it's a lot more work because you don't have a standard cohort like you did in your PhD. It's isolating. It can be very lonely. That's true. Depending on what kind of lab you're in. Uh, what kind of group you're in. So for me, I view a, the goal of a postdoc or the, a good postdoc experience, in my opinion, is one such that at the end of the experience, you as the postdoc who completed his or her training feels like they are independent. And what I mean by that means that at the end of your PhD, hopefully you learned a lot of research skills. I mean, hopefully you learned how to write papers and hopefully you gained a lot of that. But I, it's not necessarily clear to me that at the end of a PhD, somebody has learned the skills to do independent work. It's a very different skill set. Or write a grant. Or write a grant, for example. Right. It's a very different skill set. And hopefully at the end of the PhD or the postdoc, you've gained that set of skills. And there are a variety of ways you can obtain those skills. But in my opinion, a good one of the roles of a postdoc advisor is to basically play as a safety net and to let the postdoc drive the science. So let the postdoc take the wheel and make the decisions about the project and expand and flex his or her wings on in trying out different things and seeing what works and what doesn't work with the guidance, of course, with your mentors in your department helping you along the way. And if you fall, you know, if, if you know, something happens, you've got the safety net there. The postdoc advisor is designed specifically to help you back up and help you overcome whatever obstacles are along the way or talk you through any difficult decisions, talk you through and help you um, apply for jobs and navigate whatever you're trying to navigate. But the only way you get that to that stage of being independent is to try it. And so pretty much when you leave your PhD and you decide to do a postdoc, the goal of it is really to let you as a postdoc drive the science and, you know, feel what it's like to make those decisions. And at the end of it, those skills will translate into industry positions, like being able to lead a group of individuals on a project um, is an incredibly important skill or being able to determine when an analysis has gone off the rails is a, another really good set of skills that you should hopefully gain during your postdoc. And they're just like a I think it's a really important nuance um, to a nuanced statement to make whenever you're thinking about postdocs that you want to find a position that lets you be the driver of the science, lets you drive and lets you really test out what it's like to be independent and to gain those skills by the end of your position, your, your postdoc position. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I, just to be frank in the, of how the, the market is and, and jobs are, it, it does develop a whole set of skill sets. And to be perfectly honest, you are, it, it, it's, it's very hard to compare someone who came out of their PhD looking for a tenure track job compared to someone who has a postdoc. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
this, the truth of it is more people are getting them when we're apply, uh, applications for jobs come up. It's just, it's hard to really compare. And if you've definitively, or if you've kind of shown that you can be an independent researcher, that's really what a lot of tenure track faculty are. Yeah. And that's what th- people are for. And it's just, it makes you more competitive. Yeah. It's really like starting your own business. I mean, like you're a little startup and <laughs> you have to make all these decisions by yourself. And I, in my experience, my PhD didn't train me for a lot of those, what, some people call them soft skills. I mean, I, I don't know what you call them, but um, I learned a lot of that during my postdoc. So I'm really appreciative for that extra time for me. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I don't want to leave this conversation without talking about the, the decision. And I know you have a lot to say about this, the decision, like say you do a postdoc, how do you know if you want to go into industry or academia? Like what are some of the factors that might cross your mind when you're thinking about, I, I cross these cross some of my minds. I ended up in a faculty position and I'm happy to talk about that, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think the you're your own startup thing is is really definitive is is really the best way I've ever heard describing like a faculty position. And it's it's it starts in the postdoc because you have to do your R&D, your research and development, you are education, (laughs) you are advertising, you are marketing, you got to market yourself, you are your own budget, you got to worry about your own money. Um, So I think, you know, I think the the phrase, if you go to industry, you can't come back is a misnomer. I think that is not true. Um, I think it is hard if you go to an industry job where you don't publish and you stay in there for more than three to four years. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Um, so I don't think that closes the door in, on academia What's uh, as much as, as a lot of academics would let you think. Um, so that is one thing I always like to say before kind of talking about what are the skills? Um, I think the one of the big questions is, will you, do you need control over the research you do? Mm, that's a good way of phrasing it. Yeah. Because you can apply for grants, you can apply for your funding. And if you get it, you, although like you have to do, you know, be on committees and teach and all these other responsibilities, you control the R&D process. Whereas that can happen in industry a lot, but you know, a lot, if it's not bringing value to the company, there are decisions that sometimes can be completely out of your control. And there are, are ways to still get funding and apply for things, but it's not the same mechanism. So um, I think that is one huge question you have to ask. And then the other thing is for, especially for me, one of the big questions I had to answer was, was I okay leaving this part of my research behind that wasn't really going to fit in a lot of industry? Like I love doing imaging and sadly there aren't as many positions out there to do that in industry, even health tech. Um, if you're in genomics, there's a boatload. Uh, if you do clinical trials, there are boatloads. Um, but that is, is very different. And, and I hone that skill set a lot and I didn't want to give that up. And so I wanted to be able to continue on that. So that was that was one of the reasons that kept me in academia. Um, yeah, it's also a very different culture, um, for I better or worse, on both. I haven't actually experienced that culture personally. So I only have colleagues who've gone off and, and found industry positions. Some which they love it, and some which they don't for a variety of reasons. So I, 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 I can't say anything like personally about it. So. Um, but I just I can understand the differences in culture based on the way they just, my colleagues describe it. 
Yeah, maybe we'll hopefully let's let's hold off on maybe the industry side unless we get someone in here who who can can maybe show some firsthand experience. Um, but I do want to say one, I do want to end on a positive note for the jumping around thing, you know, going to institution one institution, if you stay in academia, right, a two year postdoc, you know, even if you have to move institutions from your home, from your PhD to the postdoc to a new institution, you meet people, the connections you make, those things are invaluable. You see those people back at conferences, those people invite you for talks. So even though I hate moving, um, <laughs> widening your network like that is huge immeasurably worthwhile. It's also good in terms of training. So the way you're taught a particular topic in your PhD or the way you're taught to do something in your PhD might be thought of very differently at a different institution. They might have very different ideas. And so what I, what I mean by different, you get exposed to different um, trains of thought or experiences or the, the way people talk about things is that it broadens your your perception of ideas, it stimulates creativity and the way you would have not maybe thought about something previously. And it also allows you to potentially bridge worlds that you might not have been able to bridge before. Um, and so I, there's a lot of benefit in going to a different institution, but I completely agree with you that it's not possible for many, many folk, many folks. And so, um, in that respect, you should definitely leverage your network. If you do want to do a postdoc, for example, you should definitely leverage your network at your home institution and identify somebody there that would be um, you'd be willing to work with. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think um, departments operate completely differently. So seeing yeah. like, you know, you might say, I never want to go in academia. My department does X, Y, and Z. And you go to another one, it's like, oh, that's completely different. So yeah. Take that take that experience when you can. Yeah. All right. Should All we right. call it there? Yeah, that sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Bye. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at CorrespondAuth, or my handle is StrictlyStat, and Stephanie's is Stephanie Hicks. And you can email us at thecorrespondingauthor at gmail.com. This episode was edited by Jessica Crowell, and special thanks to the Data Science Lab for their help and support.